So I like to have each tournament represent only a small portion of my bankroll. And so getting funding has allowed me to uh, have the size of capital so that that relationship is, is in good shape. Well, the backer has to do no work. They don't have to go there and play. They just have to give you the money, you go play, you bring it back to them and that's it. Typically, that is worth about 50% of your edge. I don't, I don't want to win 100,000 and have to give away 50,000 of it. Start out small by doing swaps with friends, playing the same events that you're playing. Most people staking others are looking for someone that has had consistent results, especially if they're paying a markup. If you are the investor, the big risk obviously is getting stiffed. Well, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast, officially sponsored by Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, episode number 75. I'm your host, Steve Fredland, and today we are going to be talking about staking, about getting financial backing or financially backing other folks uh, in their poker worlds. And also we'll talk a little bit about uh, tipping and how that works uh, in the lives of the folks that are contributing to the episode, which include Jonathan Little with PokerCoaching.com and Mike Schneider with the Poker is Fun Tour. And we'll also have input from recreational players Brian Soja, Rob Washam, and Steve Olson. A couple of announcements before we get started. Uh, patches are still available. They've been going out the door pretty well. Uh, we've got adhesive patches and non-adhesive patches. It was interesting, I just recently played a six-max event at Running Aces, and three of us at that starting table had patches on. Myself and Taylor Moss and Tristan Zeman all had patches. We also had some more pictures that were uploaded into Twitter that I saw. There's probably more, but I saw pictures of Brian Morey, Brian Berthume, and Steve Webb all wearing the patches. So thanks, guys, for repping the brand. Uh, also, uh, some more patches went out the door. Bill Freed, Mike Beardsley, Aaron Elmroth, all of those guys uh, will be wearing patches in addition to the, the dozens that we have already. So thanks, everybody, uh, for your support. Let's also quick thank Running Aces, and then we'll get back to uh, primary discussion for today. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of rec poker. Well, several people have asked me about staking and how recreational players can get supported to reach the next level. Uh, specifically, I had some input into this question from Steve Olson and Alberto Briones Moraz. And here's the questions that I sent out to the professional players as well as the recreational players, hoping they would address them. And uh, these are also the questions that I'll address in my response as well. For the professionals, and for the recs, I guess I asked, you know, what are the various types of staking arrangements that are out there? And are you aware of uh, staking arrangements in the recreational level uh, that can help people advance to their next, uh, the next tier of play that they want to achieve? I also asked if, if people have personally had investors and what type of arrangements those have had. And also if you've personally invested in others and what type of arrangements uh, you had there. And then I also asked, besides the obvious risk-reward trade-off of taking on investors, what are the other pros and cons of being involved in a staking arrangement? And then uh, finally, I said for I asked if there's any advice for the less experienced recreational players who want to move up in stakes but just don't have the personal bankroll to do it, and, and asked for any ideas on financial support or backing to help make that happen. 
And then in addition to the staking questions, I also said, uh, you know, what, what is your approach to tipping after cashing tournaments? So I'll share my thoughts and then we'll get into uh, the thoughts of the others. So for myself, I know that there's a number of different arrangements out there uh, from fully staked to partially staked. And there are certain coaches out there that will actually coach players and then stake them. It's sort of part of this whole training stable. So in other words, you you go and you, uh, you get trained under a coach and as part of that arrangement, uh, they're staking you in tournaments. I know that those sorts of things exist as well and some sort of a you know an arrangement between what you pay for the coaching and how the how the support comes and they get a piece of your action and, and those things so i haven't been part of any of those but i do know that those exist um, i do get messages every year from a lot of players who are looking for staking either through twitter or directly emailing or dming me uh, from people saying hey I, i'm looking for backing for these tournaments and usually they involve an entire series of events, something like we're going to the World Series to play this and looking for backing. But sometimes it's just for a specific event. And typically there's a markup somewhere between 5 and 20%, meaning that let's say there's a $1,000 buy-in that they're looking for staking on. And if you want to invest 10%, I would need to pay $100 plus the markup. So maybe if it's a 10% markup, I would need to pay $110 for that 10% stake in the tournament. The markup is an understandable part of the investment. The player has costs associated with the tournament, uh, things like travel, you know, even if they're just driving to the casino. And also the player's investing a large amount of time into playing. So a markup, I think, is a really reasonable uh, ask for investments. But the markup should be directly related to the expected return that the player has in that tournament, or basically their edge in the tournament. Uh, there's going to be a natural movement towards some equilibrium markup. If you've got um, you know, somebody that's providing a lot of action and also there's a ton of demand, eventually there's going to find this equilibrium point where people will, are willing to pay up to a certain level of markup. And that allows then the seller to sort of maximize uh, their income on that and still sell the action that they want. This is also a, a good way for professional players uh, especially who are looking to provide some fixed income as well as reduce their risk. So as I've talked to a number of pro players, you know, there, there's so much risk, there's so much volatility in income when you're just playing tournaments or even playing cash, you know, you have such great, you can have great runs of three months and, and poor runs of three months. So they're looking for ways to provide some stable fixed income streams. So things like coaching might be part of that or, or doing podcasts or different things like that. And one of the ways you could do that is actually through getting staked with a markup. So if you consider a player who plays the World Series and let's say they plan to play $100,000 worth of events for the entire summer, well, they could be self-funded. They could run the entire risk and reward. And if we just assume that the worst case scenario is they lose it all and the best case is they get 10 times their money, well, if they self-fund, then the range of results is somewhere between negative $100,000 and positive $1 million. So if they have the bankroll and they can withstand that sort of fluctuation, then maybe self-funding is the best solution. But if they can get staked, say, at 50% of their action with a 15% markup, well, the markup is theirs to keep. So they've just charged $7,500, and that's theirs to keep regardless. And then the range of results is cut in half. So their, their variance, their volatility of results is cut in half. So now their range with that markup is somewhere between negative 43000 and positive 507000 So, you know, even if they break even on the felt, in the first scenario, if they break even, 
they get $0 return. In the second scenario, if they break even, at least they'll get the $7,500 from the staking. So it's one thing to think about in terms of translating uh, variable income into fixed income. And then I have done uh, staking with other players in the past. In other words, I've invested in other players in the past, and I've had some pretty mixed results, uh, both in terms of return on investment, uh, as well as the quality of the person that I invested in. There were several people that were extremely slow in getting me payouts when they returned, and some I needed to basically stock in order to get my money back. Um, it, it's caused me to really reduce significantly, significantly uh, the staking that I do. And basically, I very, very rarely stake anyone because there's another risk beyond the poker risk of their play, and it's the risk that I will ever get paid if they do well, or potentially the risk of broken relationships. This idea of mixing business with friendship can sometimes go south if expectations are not managed or if or if anything goes wrong there. So uh, there's a risk beyond just the financial that I tend to shy away from now just based on past experience. And part of this is that it's personality driven, right? I mean, I'm I'm wired to be really professional in everything that I do. So when it, it seems like players aren't going to honor their investors or they're constantly changing the tournaments they're going to play, uh, I get pretty wary of that. I even had one player who was accused of not even playing in the events that they said they were going to. So the accusation was that they collected investors' monies, including all the markup, they didn't play in the tournaments, and then they communicated that they busted. So they never played the tournament, they just collected that money and never had to pay anything back because they said they busted. So they made some pretty nice bank just through uh, this sort of a scheme. So I doubt that I will ever invest in others much at all unless I really, really know that person well or I've got somebody that can vouch for them that I really trust. Now on the flip side, I personally have had investors for a number of years and I know that surprises a lot of people when I tell them this because I'm a recreational player. I don't, I don't play the big buy-in tournaments um, and I've had a lot of people actually give me a hard time for this once they hear about it, but I really do have some very strategic reasons for doing this. First of all, the way that I operate my staking is, is as a pool of funds that cover basically all of my tournaments for an extended period of time. The first package I offered started at the beginning of 2015, so I've been doing this for you know almost three and a half years, and that package ran for three months. And I did three quarterly packages to start in 2015, Q1, Q2, and Q3, and then eventually I transitioned that from a time-based package into a package based on total dollars spent. And currently I'm in my ninth package, which right now it's a total of a $20,000 package, which I have about a 60% stake in personally. So in other words, I've sold about 40% of my action in virtually everything I play. I, I don't count home games, I don't count cash games, I don't count any sort of pre-specified -specif, pre special events that I do with buddies. Uh, I don't include charity events, but generally it's, it's almost everything I play. And doing this like a pool creates diversification for my investors. So there's less volatility of results. So in other words, if they invest in me with one tournament, they're basically going to lose everything they invested or they're going to get a very nice return. Doing it more like this pool of, of collection of a series of different um, of tournaments, uh, it really reduces the volatility of results and it gives me an opportunity to provide a nice return over a more extended period of time. 
And most of the people that are my backers are primarily close friends and family, but uh, that has expanded uh, as my package has expanded and there's been more interest. I do run everything extremely professionally. I track everything carefully. I keep all my receipts. I send out regular updates of statuses and other communications. Uh, I give people the options to add more, add less, depending on the situation. And um, and so that's sort of how I do things. Now, I mentioned I do, I do funding like this for some strategic reasons as well. And one is, first of all, making sure that I'm providing capital to help make sure that my tournament buy-in relative to my total bankroll is in a good relationship. In other words, if I have a $20,000 package, it's not a huge hit. If I want to play a $350 or a $500 tournament, um, it's not a huge part of my bankroll. If I have a $2,000 bankroll and I'm playing a $500 tournament, well, I'm taking 25% of my bankroll and playing one tournament. That's not a good relationship. You don't. That just introduces too much volatility into my potential for playing other tournaments. So I like to have each tournament represent only a small portion of my bankroll. And so getting funding has allowed me to have the size of capital so that that relationship is, is in good shape. Now, if I continue to do well, I either have to I either have to extend the size of the pools or I'm going to have to scale back investors by others. And maybe eventually then uh, I just become completely self-funded. I have the bankroll where I don't need other investors. Um, but this, I want to keep that in relationship. I don't want to play bigger than my bankroll really allows. The second strategic reason I do this is risk reduction. Uh, I, I like to reduce the amount of risk that I'm taking with each individual tournament and overall. So I mentioned that I have about 60% of my action. So if I play a $280 tournament, I have about $160 that I've invested. So it reduces that quite a bit. Now you might say, well, yeah, but when you play a $30 tournament, uh, you've, you only have $18 of yourself. Well, that's right. Uh, that's part of the diversification piece. So I'm reducing all of my action. Um, so in that one particular tournament, maybe it doesn't make sense, but as a broad strategic approach, I love what this does to uh, my results. The third strategic thing, uh, reason I do this is, is I love this idea of building up a track record, which I can then use for both my current investors as well as future investors. If you just say, yeah, I'm a good player, I'm a winning player, well, what proof do you really have of that? It's just your word against others. And, and I, don't, I think most people don't even realize, don't, they have no idea what their ROI is. They can make a guess, but if you're not tracking anything, you really have no idea. I think about it in, when I used to bowl uh, leagues, uh, I used to do bowling in leagues, and you know, you'd know you ask people what their average is, or people would ask me what my average is, and before I bowled leagues, I would have said, oh, this, here's my average. And then I actually bowled, and I had a, a record of it, and it wasn't as good as I thought it was. Because there's, just, there's this human nature sort of thing, you kind of forget the bad stuff, uh, in this and you sort of remember the good stuff or you or you have an ego issue or whatever it is so I think it's important to have a, a track record that you can look back on and for future for future investors if I want to play bigger tournaments I want to be able to say here are my results and here are the people that were uh, part of that and you can ask them about this so anyway if, if you look at my results and I've had some very good results I think you know I've talked a lot about variance and luck and on the last episode, we talked quite a bit about that and how you can go through just these periods of being unlucky. And if that's the only thing that your investors see, if they happen to invest during that period where you're down, um, it's going to be really bad to get them to come back and invest in you again. Whereas if you get investors over the long term, if you are a winning player, 
um, they're going to see those returns and they're going to be willing to invest in you more in the future. Uh, for me personally, I mentioned that I started at the beginning of 2015, so it's like three years and a quarter. And my package, if you look at the total return on investing in me, if you invested from the beginning of that time and left it in with me, uh, the return is 538%, which is an average annual return of 76%. Now, there's a couple of small negatives in there and there's some very nice positives in there. But the, if, if you were to invest and keep it in there, 76% annual average return over those three and a quarter years. Now, if you compare this to the cumulative average annual return on the S&P 500, which is about 7.5%, these are great numbers to share with potential investors. Now, we know that past performance is not indicative of future results, but if you're a winning player and you're not specifically changing um, anything and you have that track record over an extended period of time, there's no reason to believe that you wouldn't have an expectation to outperform uh, some of the other investment options that they have. So with that, then, as I mentioned, this also allows me to create a group of referrals that can be used for future investments. So for example, I'm playing the World Series, uh, going out to Vegas this summer. I'm only playing the Millionaire Maker and then I'm playing a bunch of others. Uh, but I have a number of investors uh, for some of those things. But part of that is I can say, here's my group of referrals. If you have any questions about how I run things or my returns, talk to them. They've seen it firsthand. Not only can they attest to the returns, they can attest to the professionalism with which I do things. So as I mentioned, this has come in really handy as I put together my package for Vegas. Um, I'm playing the Millionaire Maker. I'm playing several of the $235 daily deep stacks. And then we'll fill in the blanks with some of the other dailies that are out there. So the way that this works for me, just as a way of giving you a concept of how this could potentially work for you, my overall investment fund, so that big $20,000 fund, they're going to invest in 20% of the Millionaire Maker and then 50% of the rest. I also have a co-staking arrangement with a friend of mine, and that arrangement's going to invest 10% in the Millionaire Maker, 10% in the Deep Stacks, and 25% of the other tournaments. And then for the rest, I have a special one-time investment from people, some of you that are listening to this, that's going to cover 70% of the Millionaire Maker, 40% of the Deep Stacks, and 25% of the other tournaments. So, you know, we don't need to get into all the details, but that sort of gives you a general idea of how I do things. Uh, really, it's a risk reduction piece of this um, and also building up a track record. Now, for the first time, uh, the current investment fund and my Vegas investments, I've added a, uh, a markup on. I've got a 5% expense load that I've attached to that. And that's the first time I've ever done this with any of my packages. And this is going to help cover some of the costs that are associated with these tournaments, especially going out to Vegas. So going forward, I'm planning on assessing uh, this on all of these things. Part of that is the, the expenses. Part of that is my, my track record of high performance. I believe I can now start to demand uh, a markup uh, because I think that there's going to be enough folks out there that are willing to invest in me that I can do uh, that sort of a markup because I have a proven track record. Now, also, I'll admit that some of the attraction of having investors, even though as a positive player, I'm giving up some of my, my income, some of the attraction is sharing my success with others. And that's just a personality attribute that not everyone would enjoy. Um, and there's a risk because I feel bad when I have to communicate that we lost money, but it really is fun to share my success with others, especially uh, family and friends. So that's my thoughts on, on staking, sort of the arrangements that I have. I'm happy to talk about that. I'm pretty much an open book on how I do things uh, because I think it was a um, 
sort of a um, an innovative way to accomplish the goals that I had um, for for playing poker. In terms of the side question, um, which is really about tipping, I think it's kind of an interesting one, and I don't really have a tipping strategy. Typically, I just kind of trust my gut when I'm deciding to tip. But if I do well in a daily tournament and I cash somewhere for say between two hundred and a thousand dollars, I probably give somewhere between ten and fifty bucks, which is around five percent. In bigger tournaments, I generally scale that up and uh, to the level of the tournament. But I guess it's still probably between two and five percent. I guess one of the considerations that I have is that I have to think about what my investors would deem to be fair because this is partially their money. So whenever I'm thinking about things like uh, chopping, uh, when I'm thinking about things like paying the bubble or tipping, I have to consider my investors because I'm also uh, spending part of their money to do that. So uh, it provides some accountability in that way. Now, one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is how I tip for for tournaments. Um, I'm thinking about actually not tipping at the tournament itself, which I know can look really bad, uh, but keeping a record of of my tournament success and then every quarter or every six months or whatever, say, okay, what was my net profit? And maybe determine there's a certain percentage of my net profit. Maybe say 10% of my net profit I want to tip back to the dealers and tournament dealers, and then also keep track either mentally or on paper uh, which dealers, which tournament directors I feel are the best, and then allocate out my tip to them accordingly and just give it to them directly. Um, I, I feel like that would then put the money into the hands of the folks that I feel most deserve it, uh, and also it helps me manage um, the, the tips uh, appropriately. So if I lose money for six months, uh, maybe my tip is going to be far less than if I made money for that six months. So just thinking about that sort of thing. So I'm starting to ramble on a little bit, so I'm going to cut it off there. Uh, the next voices you'll hear are from our contributing professionals, Jonathan Little with PokerCoaching.com and Mike Schneider with the Poker is Fun Tour. Hello, this is Jonathan Little of PokerCoaching.com, and today's question or questions are essentially about staking. And fortunately for you all, I am part owner of a staking company called Pokar.com, and I've also been staked and have staked lots and lots of people. So there are basically seven questions, six questions about staking that were written down. So for the pros, what type of various staking arrangements are out there? And then for the recreational player, are there any staking arrangements for them? Well, the definition of pro to recreational is quite blurred, because what's really important is how much return on investment does someone expect to get by backing someone in a tournament? For example, no one is looking to back me in $100,000 buy-in tournaments because if I have an edge, it's going to be minimal because the fields are very tough. However, if I go and play a $3,500 tournament, there'll be a line out the door to back me, right? And that's because I expect to have a huge edge. In general, if you're buying a piece of someone one time for one tournament, like say I'm going to go play a $3,500 tournament in Florida next week, I would likely expect to win at something like 50% return on investment. You may ask how in the world do you know that? Well, through past experience, through talking to other people who I think are of roughly equal skill level to myself, etc. Let's assume I'm going to win at 50% return on investment. Let's just pretend like that's the number. If you're worse at poker, you're going to win at like 10% or you may be a loser. Clearly, if you're a loser, no one should back you because they're just giving away their money, right? So let's say we have 50% RI. What is a good investment for a backer? Well, the backer has to do no work. They don't have to go there and play. They just have to give you the money. You go play. You bring it back to them, and that's it. Typically, 
that is worth about 50% of your edge. That is roughly what most people have determined the backing is worth. They're accept accepting a lot of variance, so they're gonna pay some markup. Typically, that's about half of your edge. So if I'm gonna have 50% return on investment, I'm gonna put in one buy-in and get back 1.5 buy-ins on average. So what's half of um, the edge there? 50% is the edge, so 1.25 would be a reasonable price. That is what most people would be backing you for. Let's say I'm gonna go play a $50,000 buy-in tournament and I expect to have a 10% return on investment because the tournament's tough. I do still think I'm a winner, um, but the field's gonna be small, so you're gonna have, everyone's gonna have a low edge. Well, maybe then you sell at 1.03 or 1.05. So the edge is 10%, what's half of 10%? It's 5%, so 1.05. So if it's a $100,000 tournament, they would give me, well, if I wanted to sell all of it, which is typically not what happens, but say you wanted to sell all of it, you'd get $105,000. Or if it's a $1,000 tournament, it'd be $1,050. Typically, when people are selling action like that, they almost always agree to have some portion of themselves at the minimum. Usually, when I'm selling action for the bigger stuff, I'm keeping about half of the action. Typically, it's based on what you want to keep your average buy-in out. Average buy-in is a very important number for tournament players because that let you, lets you know how big of a bankroll you need. You certainly can play bigger than, you know, like, let's say there's a soft $25,000 tournament that happens sporadically at some of these larger series. Even if you're only bankrolled for, let's say, a $10,000 buy-in tournament, it may make sense to play a 25K every, you know, three or four times a year if the tournaments are very soft because you expect to have a big edge. So anyway, that's the type of arrangements that are available. You'll find some completely oblivious people who will say something like, oh, I'll buy you in and then you give me half of whatever you win. That's basically buying you at two to one, 2.0, which means that you have to have 100% return on investment. That's the amount you're putting in above one buy-in, right? You have to have 100% return on investment for the backer to break even. And clearly, no one has that in tournaments unless it's something like the World Series of Poker main events and you are a really good player. So I would definitely say it is unethical to take money from someone at that high of a markup if you know your edge is less, than, which it almost certainly is. Um, that said, you'll find a lot of people out there essentially scamming people or just taking advantage of people's obliviousness because they think, oh, I'll buy in and you give me half of it, but they are just lighting money on fire. Anyway, um, next question is, have you personally had investors? Yes, and I've had lots of arrangements. I was backed by a very well-known high stakes player for a long time. Um, our deal was basically an unlimited makeup deal where I could basically play whatever I wanted within reason. Usually we were capped at 25K on my discretion, then higher would be on the backer's discretion. And whatever I lost, would go against my wins. So basically, say I play and play and play, and I, I, mean, I am down like 100K, let's say. And then I win a tournament for 150K. So I lose 100K, I win 150K. Okay, that's usually how it happens in tournaments. If you look at tournament graphs, they go in the downward direction. Until you win something, then they skyrocket up. Then they go down for a while again, then they skyrocket up. That's when you win something. So I would be up 50K. I put in 100, I got back 150, we'd be up 50K. Then we agree on some sort of a split ahead of time. You don't do that after the fact, you do that ahead of time. And um, we agreed on 50-50, so we split whatever I get up at any point. Anytime I'm up, we cash out. And on mine, I had my expenses paid as long as I keep my expenses reasonable, which I always do, which is very beneficial. Um, I had a deal a long time ago where I did not have expenses paid and that ends up being like 30 or 40,000 a year. 
Um, but, you know, whenever you do get the cash, you end up paying, your expenses go on the markup or on the makeup. So um, say you're down 100K, but you have 30K in expenses and you get 150K. Well, now you're only up 20K. So you split that $20,000, so you'd get 10,000 each. Um, that's a makeup deal. That's somewhat common for long-term deals. I typically don't like um, buying long-term pieces of people because people go through swings in life. And also if someone gets buried in makeup, which is what it's referred to when you're down a ton, like let's say you're playing $1,000 buy-in tournaments, but you get down 300000 Well, now your only shot to get up is to have some gigantic score, and that just doesn't happen. You end up getting depressed and sad, and um, that's not good. Um, there are lots of other things we can discuss makeup, like what if your backer wants to sell your makeup to someone else, et cetera, et cetera, but that's beyond the scope of this short video, I'm sure, or short audio, I'm sure, I'm already over my time. Um, next, have I backed others? Yeah, like I said, I typically buy one-time pieces of people or packages for series of people who I respect. I want to buy pieces of people in spots where I, they expect to have a big edge, and I expect them to have a big edge because I know these people, I've played with these people. And also, I want them. I want to make sure they really care about the event. Something that happens sometimes is someone will go and they'll play a series of tournaments, and there'll be like a $10,000 main event or $3,500 main event, and then a bunch of $300 tournaments. Quite often, this player doesn't care about the $300 tournaments. Obviously, want to back rep reputable people who are stand-up in the community, who have a proven track record of winning, which is very important. A lot of people think, oh, I'm recreational. I need a shot. But no, that's not who you want to back. You're giving away your money if you do that. Um, so anyway, I'm only going to be buying series of people for people who I know are true professionals. Like whenever, if I'm selling a package, for example, for a series, people can count on me to be there on time, ready to play every single day. And I'm not going to take any tournament less seriously than the others because I realize this is my job and I'm, I take it very seriously. Um, okay, besides the obvious risk trade-off for taking investors, oh, the investors are taking on, what are the pros and cons? Well, the pros of investing in people are that you don't have to spend any time. As you get more, well, I guess this is true for everyone, your time is by far your most valuable asset. Some people's time is worth more than others. Typically, as you learn to make more money per hour, playing poker becomes less of a priority. I mean, like, for example, I'm basically never playing a $1,000 buy-in tournament or lower again because it's not worth my time. But for a lot of people, it is worth their time because they have not achieved financial success yet, right? Um, so anyway, the backer can spend five minutes vetting someone, etc. I mean, usually you spend, you just know these things, but a backer can spend almost no time browsing a package, finding a good deal in their minds, giving the money, and that's it. You're going to go out and you're going to make money for them. It's like investing in a stock or investing in a startup company. You're going to put in money at some markup and someone else is going to do all the work for you. But, you know, you have the capital that gets them in there. Like, for example, if someone wants to put me in a $100,000 buy-in tournament, I'll take it because I'm not going to play it anyway. And it's definitely going to be worth my time still. But for a lot of these players who are backing people for $100,000 tournaments, it's not worth their time to play it because they're already really, really well off. All right. Any advice for less experienced recreational players? who want to move up in stakes but don't have the personal bankroll to do it. If you do not have the personal bankroll to move up, it's almost always because you're not good enough to move up. That is the truth of it. A lot of people think, oh, if I just had a bankroll, I could compete with these guys. Usually they're being egotistical and nonsensical. If you don't have the bankroll to play, you probably don't need to be in the games. There are certainly times where you should be selling off action to larger events because you do have an edge, but for whatever reason you don't want to take on the risk, like, for example, if I'm going to be playing $25,000 tournaments, I'm usually going to sell some action because I don't necessarily need the risk and I'm happy with whatever markup I can usually get. But if you're playing like $200 tournaments, 
No one in their right mind should put you in a $3,500 tournament because you are not good enough to beat those games. If you were good enough to beat those games, you would grind the $200 games consistently, you would grow a bankroll, and you would deserve to play those games because you have the bankroll to put yourself in. And I mean, for myself personally, like 99% of the games I play, I could easily put myself in because I, I have the bankroll to do it and I have grown my bankroll over time. Um, I'm trying to think the main times you would need backing. The times you need backing are when you want to keep risk low, but you are certainly a winner in the game. And that's usually when you, like let's say you're good enough to beat $5,000 tournaments. You've proven this, you have a bankroll for 5K tournaments, but there are bigger tournaments like 25Ks. Maybe you don't want to take on that risk. Or maybe you don't get to play very much anymore because you're doing other things, right? Remember, poker may not be worth your time anymore, but you could perhaps get in those bigger games. That's not going to be the question for nine, or that's not going to be the case for like 99.9% .9 of people. A lot of people just want to get rich quick. All playing bigger does, it's a very important concept. All playing bigger does is make you play against tougher opponents where your edge is going to be smaller. Sure, you get some experience again by playing against better players, and maybe you think, oh, I'd rather lose their money than mine, but that is quite an unethical way to look at it, or maybe just a very predatory way to look at it. There are a lot of backees who are incredibly predatory. They think, I'm going to get someone's money, I'm going to go spew it off, maybe I'll get lucky, and I'll go on with my life, because hey, it's their money, I don't care. But if that's the type of person you're backing, clearly it's not going to go well for you. Oh, man, I could write a book about this. Um... That's all I'll say for now. If people have other questions, feel free to ask me. I'm, I'm happy to help with this type of thing. In general, though, backing people in small stakes tournaments is often going to be a losing proposition because the rake is high, the structures are poor, which leads to low return on investments even for good players, and the good players don't need backing for the tournaments. Hi, this is Mike Schneider, or some of you may know me as Schneids. So question of staking, I mean, there are mainly two different ways this is primarily done, in which way number one, you sell for one event at a time, typically anywhere from no markup to a small or moderate size markup, or the other way where you sell a package or even a long-term deal that goes just forever until uh, either the investor wants to back out or everybody's made enough money. But with this way, there's typically makeup. So if you were to do it that way, you play a tournament, you lose, you're down, let's say you're playing only $1,000 once, you're down 1,000, you play, you lose, you're down 2,000, you play, you lose, you're down 3,000, you play, you lose, you're down 4,000. You play and you min cash for 2,000. That pretty much just goes towards the, the minus four. So becomes minus 2,000, or I guess 3,000, depending on if we're saying the cash was 2,000 or profit, whatever. And uh, that way, then once you finally get get above zero and make money, you uh, you and your invest investor get to split it at whatever your terms are. I mean, uh, not exactly sure what the common terms are. I, I would guess fifty fifty splits, but again, I'm not too connected to that world and haven't been in a long time. So, I'm sure, uh, Jonathan Little or Chris Wallace or any of the other people in here may have a little more insight on that kind of deal. A little more familiar with the simple, hey guys, I'm going to play the MSPT in two weekends. I'm going to sell for all bullets I play. You can have 10% for 125 bucks, like that kind of stuff. That's uh, the pretty common way to do it and allow a lot of people do it and works out pretty well. Then on the topic of markup, uh, 
I'd say it's pretty much whatever the whatever the market will give you. I mean, the the way how most people do it is, if they know people in poker, they send texts, they post about it on Twitter, either post it on Facebook, whatever. I mean, there's no right or wrong way to do it. I mean, people will pretty quickly tell you if your markup is an insane amount, or if people just simply aren't making you any message, sending you any messages saying, "Hey, I want a piece." probably good indicator you're asking for too much like uh for like a moderately skilled tournament player anywhere from one to 1.2 is probably about what you should expect or hope for and a lot of times too like i say for like for me i live in minnesota so if i'm playing a minnesota tournament if if i were to ever sell a piece say i don't really think there should be too much markup if any Whereas if I'm going to travel to Vegas and play World Series events, I think there should be a little more markup because I'm incurring travel costs and takes up more time in my life. And just I, I think that is a worthy consideration. And then plus, just like World Series, you can win a huge amount of money in a tournament, especially the main event. So there's a greater upside for a potential investor for a small amount of money. So I think that also weighs into it just a little bit as well. And then... Have I personally had investors? Uh, not too often. Occasionally for World Series events, I've sold a couple of pieces. And then uh, when I won the Party Poker Million in 2006, I had sold some pieces and swapped some pieces. But I generally shoot people down when they ask. I, I like having as much of myself as possible. And especially for like the $1,000 tournaments, I don't play them that often. So for me, they're just a break and something different. And I don't. I don't want to win a hundred thousand, then have to give away fifty thousand of it because I sold five hundred myself when I could have afforded to just pay for the whole buy-in. Like it's. I mean, it's all personal preference, though. I mean, if if you're somebody who's not rolled for something but want to try it, yes, it makes sense to sell half of yourself to get a taste of a bigger buy-in tournament. Like I, not at all dogging that. It's a great thing for a lot of people, and you definitely. If you have the resources available to you, there's no reason not to. I guess uh, besides risk and reward trade-off of, for the investors, I mean the other, the other pros and cons. I mean the pros you sometimes get a really fun sweat, and you just I mean, in a way, it, if you're investing in winning players, it's kind of reducing your variance a little bit. Just you're getting more stabs at people possibly making deep runs. Then the cons are, I mean, tournaments are swingy, so the more money you're putting in, you you might go through dry spells that are even a larger dollar amounts compared to if you're only playing with your own money for yourself. So if you're buying in yourself and buying in other people, like you might have bigger dollar down swings, even if, in theory, the variance should be smaller because you're getting more stabs at making a making a big hit. Then otherwise a con could be, I mean, depending on how well you know a person, you might somehow get screwed and not get paid. But, I mean, that's always a consideration. So before you invest in somebody, how well do you know them? Are you giving them cash? Are you sending on Venmo or PayPal or wiring or some kind of verifiable form? Are you getting it in writing? Do you trust them enough that you don't need to get anything writing and signed? Like those are all considerations. But yeah, I guess uh, beyond that, I'm sure uh, everybody else will cover a lot of things, and I'm getting kind of long here. So, again, this is Mike Schneider, or Schneids as you know me. You can find me on Twitter at Schneids Poker.
S-C-H-N-E-I-D-S-P-O-K-E-R, and I'm the founder of the Poker is Fun Tour, which I keep saying coming soon, and honestly, we're like two or three months away now. I'm just waiting to finalize some details. You can find that on the internet at piftpoker.com or piftpoker on Twitter. Thanks. Goodbye. Well, thanks so much, guys. Let's take a quick break here to thank our official sponsor, Running Aces, and then we'll be back with thoughts from our contributing recreational players. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. Staking and investing in the poker world is very common. Most tournament professionals have some sort of staking agreement, whether it's full 100% staking, including travel and expenses, or just tournament buy-ins, or a partial percentage-based staking agreement. Uh, The vast majority of these arrangements have guidelines around uh, makeup, how the backer gets paid back for money spent in events where the player did not cash, uh, length of the staking agreement, percentage of cash-out split, ability or not to sell or swap other action, what events can be played, uh, can events outside of the staking arrangement be played, and if so, uh, is the investor entitled to any of the proceeds if the player cashes, how many events will be played, uh, and tax implications. Um, This isn't a complete list of what these arrangements can include, uh, but gives a pretty good general feel uh, for what they entail. Um, While staking is fairly common in the professional tournament, Uh, player world, it is far less common in the recreational world. Um, Much of this is due to the lack of big results in tournaments. Um, Much like someone investing in the stock market, uh, a poker investor is going to want to see a return on their investment. Uh, A recreational player may not be able to log enough tournaments uh, and cash in enough events uh, to attract a potential investor. Um, For me, uh, staking and investing is a personal decision. Um, While I totally understand the risk mitigation, ability to play larger events, and other logical reasons why players have these arrangements, uh, for the most part, they're not for me. Um, I've had investors in single events and a series of events in the past. Um, When people entrust their money in me and my ability, uh, I take it very personally. Uh, Because of this, I emotionally struggle with guilt uh, when I don't perform well in the events Uh, event or events that people invest in me. Uh, I do understand the logical nature of investing. Uh, People that invest in me understand the risk uh, and that they may not see a return on their money, but I still feel as though I have let them down. Uh, Due to these feelings, I generally do not sell action and almost never for just a single event. When I do sell action, it is for a series of events uh, with lots of value built into them. I also generally sell to friends and family. Um, while you might think this might make my feelings of guilt worse, and in some ways it does, when I perform well, I want those that are closest to me to be the benefactors. Uh, I also only sell action to events I was going to play regardless of whether or not I sell the action. Um, This ensures to myself and my investors uh, that I'm playing in events that are not above my skill level, uh, that are not beyond my bankroll, and ensures them that I'm Uh, just as personally invested in the events as they are. So when I do sell action for these events, it is always for a smaller percentage of myself than I personally own. Uh, For example, 
uh, I've put a package together for uh, some summer events this year. So not just the World Series, but uh, during the World Series for a series of events. Um, I'm only selling a maximum of 30% of myself. If all of that gets sold, great. If not, it's fine too. Uh, I'm still playing those events regardless. Um, I've only privately offered the package to friends and family. So you won't see me posting on social media or anything like that. Um, I, I want the, the investments to just come from, from those people that I, that I know and trust. Um, I've spread the package out over nine high-value events, uh, so larger guarantees or prize pools uh, with low buy-ins uh, to try and create the most bang for my investors' dollars but, uh, and also uh, multiple bullets uh, for each event. Uh, I've also created tracking sheets personalized for each investor uh, so they know exactly what events I'm playing, uh, when and where I'm playing them, what their investment in each event is, refunds if any for events not played, uh, etc. Um, I've also committed to each investor a timetable for each of them to receive updated tracking information which automatically gets calculated uh, and a timetable for them to receive their refunds and or cash outs. Again, I, I take it very personal when someone chooses to invest in me, and I want them to feel as comfortable as possible making that investment. Uh, some advice uh, I have for those players either new to selling or less experienced in it um, would be start out small by doing swaps with friends, playing the same events that you're playing. Uh, swap is when you both agree to get a certain percentage of each other's action in a particular event uh, without personally investing money in the other person's buy-in. For example, you and a friend are both playing the 150 double stack at aces. Uh, you agree to a 5% swap. If either of you cash, the person who cashes gives 5% of their winnings to the other player. Um, if you both cash, you both pay. Uh, this is a good way to start uh, to determine how you feel about selling action. You may struggle with feelings of greed. If you cash and your friend doesn't, you want to keep that money. Um, or you may feel guilt uh, if they cash and, and you didn't. Uh, also, uh, sell small amounts of action in events you're going to play regardless. Uh, this ensures that you're not playing beyond your skill and bankroll levels that you uh, play your best. The last thing you want to do is not play uh, optimally uh, just because you have other people's money riding on your performance. Uh, and lastly, uh, talk with uh, people that you know and trust in the poker community about staking and selling action. There are tons of things to consider when thinking about this, and having advice from someone you trust is invaluable. This is Rob Washam for the Rec Poker Podcast. Today we're discussing staking. As a rec player, I have very little experience with staking. A couple years ago, I went on a Vegas trip with a buddy, and each day we would enter the same tournament. Uh, we had made arrangements that we would agree to split any caches 50-50. Not really staking, but the first one out still had somewhat of a sweat. Uh, one time I was staked at by some friends while playing the MSPT Regional at Grand Casino Malax. I didn't charge a markup. It was more for the sweat than anything. That's about the extent of my staking experience. Less experienced rec players are going to have a hard time finding people to stake them. Most people staking others are looking for someone that has had consistent results, especially if they're paying a markup. A rec player's best chance of receiving staking is going to come from friends and relatives. So don't expect a markup in that case, because you'll have a hard time explaining markups to uh, non-poker players. And the side question is on tipping. I'll tip the dealers anytime I make the cash. I will generally tip in the 2% range. 
I have tipped more, especially up at Grand Casino Malax. I play a lot of poker up there, and I know the th dealers, so I tend to be a little more generous and tip up to 5%. In cash games, I typically play like 3-6. My tip will depend on the size of the pot. If I win the blinds, I won't tip. If I win a small pot, I'll ask the dealer to chop a white chip and give them a silver. For a medium pot, I'll give them a white chip. For the monster pots, I'll give them two white chips. And same goes for any uh, two 100 or one two no limit games I happen to play. And that's all I got for this week. Talk to you next week. Hey, Rec Poker listeners, this is Steve O here to talk about this week's talk topic, which is staking and investing. Big topic. Uh, a lot of you know recreational players, beginning players, don't know a lot about it. I'm not going to. Uh, you know, presume to be I'm any sort of expert on it, but I'll share with you what I do know. Uh, Steve Fredlin has posted some questions for us this week, and I'm going to kind of group the first two together. Am I aware of any staking arrangements? And have you had any personal investors in what type of arrangements? Um, I'm not, you know, other than whatever I do, I'm sure there are plenty of arrangements that go on. Uh, as far as my personal arrangements, I'll tend to hedge my bets. And what I mean by hedge my bets is I'll trade pieces of myself with other players that I, you know, have faith and confidence in that have a good chance of cashing that I know are solid players. Uh, I wouldn't do it with people because I think they're my friends or because I like that person. You know, this is about cash. It's about money. It's about making money. It's because I would believe that it would be worthwhile to do it. And it's a good way to hedge your bet. Um, you know, let's say you trade 5% of yourself with, with, you know, three other players, you know, at the very least, if, you know, if they're solid, you can, you know, cover your, your buy-in. Um, and me, you know, and if they go on and come in for a second and third, you can make some really good money even by, by, uh, you know, if you bust out, and then you know, and if you all bust out, you're all out. And even if you do bust out, uh, you're not out anything because since you've traded, you're not out any sort of makeup. Um, the next question: Have I invested in others? I have. I have invested in other players a couple of times. No real big stakes. You know, smaller dailies. Um, I have not personally been you know had taken on investors um because there are some pros and some cons and some risk and some reward which we'll get to in the in the next question um pros and cons obviously the pro as a player is is you're not playing with your money um you know you're not taking the financial risk however it's not that easy and there are some definite cons to it. A, whether you like to think about it or not, if you're taking, if you have an investor, you work for that person. Period. And this is what I mean. And this is the other con is the makeup. The makeup simply means is that if you have an investor, they pay your way into the tournament. You split the winnings 50-50 plus the investor gets the cost of the tournament recouped. So let's say the tournament costs $100, you win 1000 the investor is going to get the $100 back 
um, which leaves 900 left over. Um, and you would each get 450. So you would get, you would get 450. Your investor would get 550. The problem with the makeup comes is what happens when you lose. The makeup doesn't go away. So now you get to the next tournament. Your investor buys you into that. You owe, if you cash, you owe him the, the price of the previous buy-in. You owe him the price of the current buy-in. After that's paid off, then you know you split the winnings 50-50. Um, and if you're not cashing consistently in the top three, um, you know you're you're not making a ton of money. Um, you know other risks. If you are the investor, the big risk obviously is getting stiffed. Um, and don't think, you know, there's big name players, players that we all know. That have, that have, are certainly you know have a reputation of running bad and stiffing people. Um, you know the one name I would put out there is Mike Mattisil, and the only reason I'm putting that name out there is because Daniel Negrano has talked about it very publicly um, about him stiffing investors um, and going broke. So that's obviously the, you know the the big the big risk. If you're going to invest in somebody, um, you got to know that you can trust them. And as you, and if you're talking big buying tournaments, thousand, five thousand, ten thousand, fifty thousand, you're talking, you know, some pretty serious money. Um, you know, what advice do I give if you're looking to move up? You don't have the bankroll, um, but you want to move up in the stakes. A, if you don't have the bankroll to move up in the stakes, you're probably not good enough to move up in the stakes, and which means you're probably not good enough to take people's money to play in those. I probably wouldn't do it. And if you if you're looking to move up, that is exactly what qualifiers are for. Get in the qualifiers for a price that you can afford. Win your seat. See how you do. You know, you cash those. You're, you you know, you, a you'll have a proven record, so that you'll be able to get investors a little bit more easily. Um, you'll also build money for your bankroll. Um, but if you don't have the money to move up. I wouldn't do it until you've somehow, you know, found a way to prove yourself. I, you know, in the long run, I think it's better not to, to, to play for yourself, not play for other people. Certainly, um, you know, not get into debt with other people. Um, you know, there's also another way to do it where players will sell packages um, for themselves, I'm not going to comment on that. I know that Steve is going to has talked about that. Um, I haven't done it, so I'm just not not the person to talk about it. I've certainly thought about it for myself. You know, I, I certainly have a good track record for cashing. You know, daily events. Um, I kind of feel me personally, even though I've made a couple of decent runs in in you know big time spots. I've yet to hit that home run ball. Until I hit that home run ball and really build some credibility, um, I'm not going to take on you know big time investors until that happens. Um, and hopefully it does someday. Anyway, that's all I've got for um, staking and investing. We also do have a side question this week: tipping. How do you handle tipping? Well, first of all, you know, uh, you know, I've got to confess, I've worked in the in the restaurant hotel business my entire life. I am a tipped employee at my full time uh, job, so I'm I'm certainly going to be a tipper. 
Uh, I tip 5% of what I win unless it's a min cash and I'm just getting my buyback or a little bit more than my buyback back. Um, I'm certainly not going to win a tournament and then go home with less than my buy-in because I tipped. Um, But typically I tip 5% um, and that's just how I do it. Uh, Good luck at the tables this week. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for today. Thanks, everybody, for uh, for hanging out with us again today. Sorry, my part of it got a little bit long today, but it's a it's a very interesting topic that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, thanks also to the recreational players, the pros, uh, for giving feedback. Uh, thanks to Stephen Alberto for uh, you know, the impetus behind this question. Please tell others about us. Uh, share us. Uh, let us let us know what we can do better. Uh, if you want to wear patches, let me know about that deal. Otherwise, I look forward to hearing from you, and we will chat with you next week.